in context, this day, this is the day, is the day that we rejoice and be glad and it's the day of salvation. for listening to the Shoreline Church Podcast. You're listening to Doxology, a sermon series through seven essential psalms. For more audio and theological content, visit thisisshoreline.com. All right, Shoreline, let's grab a seat. Welcome. Go ahead and grab a seat. Welcome. If you are new, we just want to welcome you this morning. We're gathered together with the broken and the blood bought. So this morning, it's an honor for me to read the scriptures with you. And actually, you're going to be reading it with me this morning. We're going to do something different today. So I hope you have a Bible. If you don't have a Bible, please raise your hand high. You absolutely need a Bible this morning. We're going to be in Psalm 118. So keep your hands up high. We'll get you a Bible. They're being passed out now. And if you have your Bibles or the Bible app, make your way to Psalm 118. You can follow the Bible app event that we have there under events. You just look up Shoreline. And uh, what we're going to do today is um, we've got Bibles now. Go ahead and stand. This is going to be fun this morning. I've been wanting to do this since we started this series in Psalms. We're going to be doing a responsive reading of Psalm 118. So I'm going to read a line and then you're going to respond. If you can't stand up, that's fine. Stay where you're at. But I'm going to read a line, then you're going to respond, okay? So let's do this as an example. We're going to do Psalm 118, verse 1, where I'm going to say, Oh, give thanks to the Lord, for he is good. And your response is? Awesome. If you've got the ESV, that's the key. (laughs) That's the version we're reading from, English Standard. If you don't, um, just listen along. So, verse 2. Let Israel say... Let the house of Aaron say, let those who fear the Lord say, out of my distress I called on the Lord, the Lord is on my side, I will not fear, the Lord is on my side as my helper, it is better to take refuge in the Lord It is better to take refuge in the Lord. All nations surrounded me. They surrounded me, surrounded me on every side. They surrounded me like bees. They went out like a fire among thorns. I was pushed hard so that I was falling. The Lord is my strength and my song. Glad songs are in the tents of the righteous. The right hand of the Lord exalts. I shall not die, but I shall live. The Lord has disciplined me severely. Open to me the gates of righteousness that I may enter through them. This is the gate of the Lord. I thank you that you have answered me and have become my salvation. 
This is the Lord's doing. It is marvelous in our eyes. This is the day that the Lord has made. Save us, we pray, O Lord. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. The Lord is God, and he has made his light to shine upon us. Bind the festal sacrifice with cords. You are my God, and I will give thanks to you. In verse 29, oh, give thanks to the Lord, for he is good. This is the word of the Lord. Father, thank you for this opportunity to study uh, this passage of scripture, and we pray that you would speak by your spirit today in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. You may be seated. Well, that was fun. One of the marks of a follower of God is gratitude. And yet, something that's missing from many of us as believers in our life is that, that discipline or that attribute, if you would, of gratitude. Someone has well said, if you're wanting to find gratitude, the only place you'll find it is in the dictionary because it's not in the world. And often we find ourselves thanking God maybe for something that brings us joy or comfort or encouragement, but how many of us thank God even for the trials? George Matheson, the well-known blind preacher in Scotland, now with the Lord, said this on the screen. He said, my God, I have thanked thee a thousand times for my roses, but never once for my thorn." I've been looking forward to a world where I shall get compensation for my cross as itself a present glory. Teach me the glory of my cross. Teach me the value of my thorn. Show me that I have climbed to thee by the path of pain. Show me that my tears have made my rainbow. What a great perspective. And that's similar to the perspective that we're going to be reading today as we continue our series through eight essential psalms. This morning, we're going to be looking at Psalm 118, what you and I just read together. And next week, we're going to conclude this amazing series that it's been one of my favorite series ever to teach. I don't know if you've enjoyed it. I've loved it. And next week, we'll be looking at the Psalm of Psalms. It's the Psalm that is the longest chapter in our Bible, and it's all about the Word of God. That's Psalm 119. Uh, but I'm not going to be here to teach it. My good friend, Bible expositor, Pastor Dan Sardinas of West Bradenton, uh, Northwest Bradenton Baptist, actually, uh, is going to be here next week to teach it. And I told him, you have to teach the entire psalm. So he said, great, we'll be there till 7 p.m. at night next week. No, he's not going to teach the whole psalm, but it's going to be a great time. Um, we'll be, of course, gone to uh, the Engage Global Missions trip, which we'll be uh, talking to you guys about in a minute. But Psalm 118, as we look here in our Bibles, was known as Martin Luther's absolute favorite psalm. Here's what Martin Luther said about it. He said, this is my psalm my chosen song. I love them all. I love all Holy Scripture, which is my consolation in my life. But this psalm is nearest my heart. And I have a peculiar right to call it mine. It has saved me from many a pressing danger, from which no emperor, nor kings, nor sages, nor saints could have saved me. It is my friend, dearer to me than all the honors and powers of the earth. Psalm 118 was actually the sixth and final psalm of a group of psalms known as simply the Hallel, which were sung before and after the Passover meal in the Jewish community. So we've talked about these different categories called a Thanksgiving, penitent psalms and imprecatory psalms and, and psalms of praise. This is what's called a Thanksgiving psalm. So if you're taking note, this is a Thanksgiving psalm. That is, the singer 
which we're not really sure who it is, probably post-exilic. We don't know if it was David, probably not. Probably would have been written around the time of Ezra. But this is where the singer gives thanks to God for a particular attribute or something specific. And sometimes that's just one thing. But in Psalm 118, there's actually four bigger picture ideas of what the psalmist is glad for. And this is going to be our outline together this morning. So if you're a note taker, uh, then you want to jot these down or take a picture with your phone. This is the outline that we're going to follow today. First, we're going to see that the psalmist is thankful, number one, for God's steadfast hased, And we'll see what that means in a minute, verses one through four. Then we're going to see that he's thankful for God's sure help in verses five through 13. He's thankful for God's saving hand in verses 14 through 21. And to keep consistent with the S and H, it's a little awkward, but it makes sense. You'll see in a minute. He's thankful for God's stone house. What does that mean? We'll find out in a minute. Uh, So let's jump into the first section, verses 1 through 4. Thanksgiving for God's steadfast hased. Look back at verse 1. He says, and it's also the last verse, same thing. Verse 1 and the last verse are identical opening and closing, he says, Oh, give thanks to the Lord, for he is good, for his steadfast love endures forever. If you have a pen with you or highlighter, you want to circle that little phrase, steadfast love. Uh, The first cause for thanksgiving is the goodness and the steadfastness of God's love for his people. It's not just that he does good, but he is good. And so right out of the gate, the steadfast love, or more accurately, the Hebrew word hased, is, is what he's thankful for. And what that is, is it's God's loyal and covenantal love. This is a love that he has for specifically his people. You know, you could translate this differently, and I heard some of you guys with the different translations, uh, oh, give thanks to the Lord, his mercy endures forever. So you could translate it mercy, that's appropriate. You could translate it loving kindness, or you could translate it steadfast love. But see, the Bible consistently says that this is something that will endure forever. It's something that will never end. It will never be taken away from God's people. We know in passages like Romans 8, nothing can separate us from the love of Christ. And I don't know if you saw the three groups in verses 2, 3, and 4, but there's three groups that are called on to give their, um, their statement. They're supposed to say these things. Did you see the groups? There's Israel in verse 2. There's the house of Aaron in verse 3. And there's those who fear the Lord in verse 4. Aren't those the same? Well, not necessarily. When he says Israel in verse 2, he's calling the nation of Israel as a whole to just praise God for his steadfast love as a, as a people. Uh, Then he says, more specifically, the house of Aaron. And so he's kind of zeroing in on the priests and those who served at the temple. And he's saying, hey, you in the temple, praise God for his everlasting love. And then he says in verse 4, let all those who fear the Lord. So this is calling out anyone who's not just a cultural follower uh, of Israel or who's required to serve in the temple, but those who have a real and a personal desire to follow God. And so the whole host of Israel and those specifically in the temple and then all of those who love the Lord and fear the Lord are called to sing together a song of thanksgiving in unison for what? For the unfailing love of God. And that's something that we just sang this morning and that's something that we should honestly be constantly thankful for. God, if it weren't for your love expressed to us in your kindness in Christ, then I have nothing to stand upon. I have no right to lift my hands or to receive from you. I I am am by nature a child of wrath. So that you would give me your love just is is something worth thanking you for. 
So then in verse 5, we see the next thing that he's thankful for, kind of moving a little faster through this. Um, Secondly, he's thankful for God's sure help. Look at verse 5, and we read it earlier, but he says, Out of my distress, I called on the Lord, and the Lord answered me, and he set me free. The Lord's on my side, so I will not fear. What can man do to me? It's an obvious question. If God's on your side, what can man even pose as a threat? So then he says in verse 7, the Lord's on my side as my helper, and I shall look on triumph on those who hate me. Now, one person called the first section timeless love, and this section timely help, and I like that. But notice that the psalmist here is calling on the Lord out of where? Out of his distress. Now, what exactly was his distress? We're not really sure, but if you look at verse 6, it seems that he was being threatened. He says that, that men, what can men do to me? So he's almost under threat. In verse 7, he says, my enemies hate me. Uh, and it's not just one individual who's after him. If you look down in verses 10 through 12, this section hints that there's many nations all around him. And then in verse 13, he says that he was pushed so hard that he almost fell. So this is not like a fake threat. This is a very real threat. This distress is not something make-believe or over-exaggerated. You and I know how we can be this way or people that we know can be very terrified of possibility of danger, right? You guys know what I'm talking about, the possibility of a storm coming and everyone raids the, okay, I'm not going to go there. That's, that's not in the text, so I'm not going to do that. But, you know, we just, people just panic when there's a perceived threat, potential trial that may be coming. And even the small chance of a problem, like, oh, I don't know what's going to happen today. It's Monday. And my boss could fire me, and I'm not sure what to do. And so uh, that's not the case with the psalmist here. This is a real threat. This is an overwhelming threat. And so what does he do? He calls on the Lord to help him. And then in verse 6, he affirms that no matter what's coming against him, the Lord's on my side. So I'm not going to fear. Now this verse, verse 6, is quoted in our New Testament in Hebrews 13, 6. This idea of trusting that the Lord is on our side. I like what Charles Spurgeon said about this. He said, we know very well the great anxiety shown by men in all their worldly conflicts to secure the aid of a powerful ally, in their lawsuits to retain the services of a powerful advocate, or in their attempts at worldly advancement to win the friendship and interest of those who can further the aims they have in view. If such and such a person be on their side, men think that all must go well. Who's so well off as he who is able to say, the Lord is on my side? I love this. Hundreds of years before the book of Romans was written, the psalmist can affirm that, hey, if God is for us, then who can be against us? Romans 8.31. The, the Lord is on my side. Therefore, because of that, I will not fear. What a statement of affirmation and faith. And I believe that many people who are exposed to Christianity, just exposed to it, and they hear the gospel, some of them live in kind of a pseudo-fear. In other words, they believe that God's actually against them. So that may be because they've never repented and trusted Christ, so they're not converted, and so there is a real reason to fear, uh, and that's legitimate. But my heart breaks for true Christ followers who have this unbiblical notion sort of kind of locked in their brain that God's always against me. Everything that I do, God's just against me, that he's angry with me, that I'm still at enmity with him. What a wonderful truth to be able to utter this text, that because of Christ's atonement on my behalf, because of the finished work of Jesus at Calvary, uh, God is indeed for us. 
right? Ephesians 2 tells us that before we were in Christ, we were uh, by nature children of wrath and God was against us, but God poured out his wrath upon his son. And to all who receive him, he gives the right to be called children of God. So why would I fear anything or anyone when God himself is no longer against me, but he's on my side? Why would I fear anything? What can man do to me? In fact, there's actually two comparisons in verses 8 and 9. He says, it's better to take refuge in the Lord than to trust in man, and it's better to take refuge in the Lord than to trust in princes. Now, um, you might want to circle these two verses, a little bit of fascinating trivia here. I don't know if you're a Bible nerd like me. I think it's with the territory. It's like, if you're a Bible nerd, maybe you're going to be a pastor one day, amen? I don't know. But this is a fascinating bit of trivia, but if you're the sort of person to count every verse in the Bible, I don't know if you've done that on your spare time. But uh, you would count 31,174 verses. And if we were going to try to find the very middle verse of the Bible, we would land right here in verses 8 and 9. So almost like on the peak of one side of the old and the other side of the old into the new, we have verses 8 and 9, the 15,587th and the 15,588th verse. But I love that this is such a great reminder. Whether it's a lofty man, a prince, or just a regular guy, they're going to fail us. Can we just breathe a sigh of relief that our hope is not in man, that our hope is not in ourself? We sang a lyric a moment ago, and Pastor Micah was singing it, and I'm not calling him out. It was just kind of funny. The, the word said, how I often make mistakes, or I often fail. And I think when Micah sang it, he said, sometimes fail. And whether it's sometimes failing or often failing, we fail, and men fail us. And so what a great encouragement that it's better, it's safer, it's wiser to take refuge in God than in people. If you're banking on your own good works today, that, well, see, I'm a bedrock of faith. I got this. I'm never going to fail. I've got this. I'm going I'm to make it through the year and have my quiet time every morning in, in every verse of the Bible. I'm going to do this, and I'm going to pray without ceasing throughout the entire day, right? And then it's 6.15, and you realize you're an utter failure, It's okay, it's okay today to realize that uh, with man, it's better to take refuge in the Lord. Well, look at the next few verses and look how dire the psalmist predicament looks. No matter how desperate the circumstance though, he says nothing is beyond God's sure help. Notice that he says that, that all the nations surrounded me, they surrounded me like bees, but he keeps affirming, and you were reading it back to me, in the name of the Lord, I cut them off. And then verse 13, I was pushed hard so that I was falling, but it was the Lord who helped me. Notice with me in these verses two things. First, the seriousness and the extent of the threat. That's the first thing. I mean, all the nations are surrounding him. They're pushing him to the brink of falling. This is overwhelming and serious. But secondly, notice the ease with which he overcomes it. He says in verse 12 uh, that they went out like a fire among thorns. In other words... I don't know if you've ever been camping, any campers here. I've been camping quite a few times, and when you camp, you build fires. And one of the things that you put in the fire is something that will be consumed somewhat quickly or something that'll, that'll burn well. And so you might be that guy, and you're like, hey, let's throw some, some plastic on there, right? Bad idea. You throw some items that maybe aren't the best. But if you take thorns, dry thorns, and you just throw them into a fire, they immediately are consumed. They just kind of go up in a quick uh, flash of fire. They put up no resistance whatsoever. And so the psalmist may be saying that all of this stress, they're surrounding me, but then they just go out like fire among thorns. It's just a perceived threat that goes away immediately. Now certainly we can relate to this, can't we? 
I think of the times that I've been overwhelmed, I've been hard-pressed, I've been surrounded. Can you relate to this? Believing that, oh boy, this is it. Like, this is the last trial that I have the power to deal with. Lord, I'm going to die. I'm going to die in this trial. I will not endure this. There's no way that God will come through. I'm toast. I'm dead. And then through the prayer and through the waiting, God is faithful to come to our rescue in half an hour. Is, is that your experience? That's my experience. God is so faithful to come through. Just recently, our family had a bit of a tax scare. The IRS made a mistake where um, they saw our income and they said, oops, and so there was a mistake. And we got an official IRS letter, actually several, that said we owed such a high amount of taxes that they were going to begin um, seizing our bank accounts and, um, and basically uh, every bit of our meager income was, would be taken. And so we would have to sell our cars, we'd have to sell our children, we'd have to sell our, <laughs> sell our pancreas uh, just to make ends meet. And so a few weeks ago, just to be a little transparent, the stress of that and the, the final letter that said within a month, within a month we're going to garnish your wage and your bank account, um, it just it overwhelmed me. And so I'm, I'm, I'm calling the IRS in a panic and in a huff, and I'm on the, your wait time is now 65 minutes, you know, so, so I'm on the phone, I'm on hold, and I'm vacuuming, and I'm just, I'm getting stressed out. And then I just decided, you know, let's stop the insanity. Let's hang up the phone, and let's just pray. And so I prayed. And, um, and it, it was an imprecatory prayer, all right? It was one of those prayers, like, Lord, come on, do something against my enemies. And so, uh, but I trust you, Lord. So I prayed, and then I decided, you know, I'm going to go outside and get some fresh air. So I walk outside, get some fresh air, and I was like, oh, the mailman just came. So I go, I open the mailbox, and there's a letter from the IRS. And I open the letter, I'm like, what is it now? Well, the letter said, hey, we've made an adjustment. We've fixed it and your income is good to go. And I just thought, oh, how crazy is the timing of that? God is so faithful. Uh, even at that moment I'm on hold, right? He's there uh, at work. So I could spend literally the rest of our gathering today recounting these kind of stories of God's timely help, uh, God's um, faithfulness. God is our salvation, church, not, uh, not man, not your mom. Your mom's not salvation, not your rich uncle. Not the president, okay? We're to look to the Lord for help, not to our diet, not to our raise, not to the weekend, not to our friendships, not to our education or our theological intelligence. It's better to take refuge in the Lord than in any falling object under the sun. That is what we put our hope in. Now, with that in mind, look at our third section, thankful for God's saving hand, verse 14. This to me is where it gets really profound. He says, the Lord is my strength and my song. Note the person, the personal aspect of this. He's my strength. He's my song. He has become my salvation. Now, if you recognize verse 14, it's because it was sung previously. It was sung in Exodus chapter 15, verse 2. This was sung by Israel after the Lord destroyed Pharaoh's army in the Red Sea. This was the song of Miriam. In fact, Alexander McLaren said this, Miriam sang it, the restored exiles sang it, tried and trustful men in every age have sung and will sing it, till there are no more foes. And then by the shores of the sea of glass mingled with fire, the calm victors will lift again the undying song of Moses and of the Lamb. Notice what he's thankful for. He says, the Lord is three things, my strength, my song, and my salvation. When he says the Lord is our strength or my strength, it means he's my source of power. 
obviously. When he says the Lord is my song, he means uh, that God is my source of joy. He's the reason that I lift up my voice and sing. When he says God's my salvation, he means he is my source of hope. So God is our resource in times of weakness. He's the reason for our worship, and he's our rescue in times of trouble. But perhaps the most fascinating thing about verse 14 is that word salvation. Would you circle that word salvation? The Lord, Jehovah, is my strength, my song, and he has become my, here's how you would read it in the Hebrew. I think we have it on the screen. He has become my Yeshua. This is awesome. You see, we would translate the Hebrew word Yeshua as the name Jesus. So you would not be incorrect to read verse 14 as, God is my strength and my song, and he has become my Jesus. Love this. No wonder the psalmist uses the word glad in verse 15 when he says glad songs of salvation are existing in the tents of the righteous. And notice the songs are glad songs. They're songs of gladness, of gratitude, of thanksgiving. And then he kind of gives us an example of one of those songs. Maybe he was listening to the righteous singing in their tents at night with their children. Just, oh, the, the right hand of the Lord. And so he starts kind of singing one of these songs. This is one of the songs. The right hand of the Lord does valiantly. The right hand of the Lord exalts. The right hand of the Lord does valiantly. God's hand on our behalf is valiant. His arm is not too short to save. In fact, listen to the faith and hope in verse 17. He says, I shall not die, but I shall live and recount the deeds of the Lord. That's not a verse, by the way, for you to go quoting when you're about to go skydiving or uh, bungee jumping. I shall not die, but I, that's, that's out of context. Okay? Verse 17 actually was very precious to many of the reformers. In the Protestant Reformation, William Cowper found this to be a, a bedrock verse in his life. John Wycliffe actually quoted this against his detractors. He said, I shall not die but I shall live and recount the evil deeds of the friars. <laughs> he actually quoted it against his enemies. But Martin Luther, in particular, uh, was greatly cheered by this verse, which assured him that he would be perfectly safe until his work on earth was done. He goes on and he says, The Lord has disciplined me severely, but he's not given me over to death. Open to me the gates of righteousness that I may enter through them. And here's what he's going to do when that happens. He's going to give thanks to the Lord. This is the gate of the Lord. The righteous shall enter through it. I thank you that you've answered me and have become my salvation. Notice the order here, church. God initiates by opening the door of salvation, the, the gate of righteousness. And so we then enter through it and then we turn in response and give thanks. You see the order? We don't save ourselves and then expect God to thank us. All right, God opens the door, we enter through it, and then we give him the praise and the glory. Now let's look at this fourth idea of being section of one eight, uh, Psalm 118. And this is the most known and quoted section, this fourth idea of being thankful for God's stone house. This section is quoted, uh, verses from this section, uh, is quoted in Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, Acts, 1 Peter, and Ephesians. This is a very um, important passage of Scripture. That's why we're spending a little more of our time on it uh, in the sermon. So look at verse 22. He says this, The stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. This is the Lord's doing, and it is marvelous in our eyes. Uh, take that um, pen or highlighter and circle that word cornerstone. This is a key word, cornerstone. A cornerstone is an important stone that would have been laid to connect adjoining walls, or some people think that it was the capstone or the keystone 
that was laid at the top as kind of a headstone that would keep uh, kind of the pieces of the building together. So either way, it's either the foundational piece or that's the overarching piece that held everything together. Either way. Now, Jesus quotes this verse, verse 22 and 23, about himself, okay, in Matthew chapter 21, in Mark chapter 12, and in Luke chapter 20. So this is a a quote that Jesus quoted about himself. Peter also quoted this verse being about Jesus in his sermon in Acts chapter 4. Remember when he and John were standing before the same men who crucified Jesus? So this is the same verse that he quotes. Paul, the apostle, quotes it in Ephesians 2 about the household of faith that it's being built on the foundation of the prophets and the apostles with Jesus as the chief cornerstone. And you and I are being built up. That's the purpose of the church gathering is to be equipped and built up. Well, then Peter mentions it later again in 1 Peter chapter 2. In fact, every reference in the New Testament connects a rejected cornerstone as being Jesus. Now, there's kind of a remarkable story about this, and we can't base our our faith off of remarkable side stories. We base them on Scripture, but I think this is an interesting story, at least, um, that colors in maybe some of the details. But as this particular story goes, um, this cornerstone idea may have been a reference to something that happened in Solomon's temple when it was originally being built. Uh, It took about 30,000 workmen about seven years to complete the temple. And according to 1 Kings 6, all the stones were quarried away from the temple site, the building site, so they didn't hear any sound of hammering there. They kind of quarried it off-site. And so Jewish tradition says that one day, again, this is a story, so we don't bank a lot on it, but it's interesting. One day the building superintendent saw that there was an unusual stone shape kind of being delivered, and it didn't really fit. And because it was an odd shape, he thought it was a mistake and it was flawed. So he had it rolled away down into the Kidron Valley where it basically laid untouched and unnoticed. And years later, the same builder sent word to the quarry, hey, I'm ready for the main cornerstone. And the quarry master came and said, well, I had that stone delivered years ago. And so when they began to search, they found it, according to legend or history, they found it discarded in a valley, and they found it that was the main cornerstone. It was covered with moss and debris, and it took lots of men working hard to raise this stone out of the valley, and when they brought it and set it, it fit perfectly. And so the chief cornerstone was the very rock that they rejected. Interesting story. But no matter how you look at this, Jesus says, I'm the foundation. I'm the base upon which we build our lives upon. Jesus was rejected by men. Even though he came to his own, his own did not receive him. They rejected him. So he's the foundation and or he's the capstone. He's the ark that he's, that's being laid that holds the entire building together. Another Spurgeon quote, he, I love this. He says, now he is the bond of the building, holding Jew and Gentile in firm unity. This precious cornerstone binds God and man together in wondrous amity, for he is both in one. He joins earth and heaven together, for he participates in each. He joins time and eternity together, for he was a man of few years, and yet he is the ancient of days, wondrous cornerstone. Now notice that the psalmist said, this is the Lord's doing. In other words, God is the author and the initiator of our salvation, and the work of God in our salvation He says, it's marvelous. It's marvelous. Well, then we get to verse 24. 
He says, this is the day that the Lord has made. Let us rejoice and be glad in it. There's a throwback. Remember that song growing up? Love to sing that. My parents would often say, this is the day the Lord has made. As I got out of my bed as a grumpy teenager, I'm supposed to rejoice and be glad in it. Um, So that's not incorrect. Every day is a gift that we should rejoice in. But specifically in context, this day, this is the day, is the day that we rejoice and be glad in. It's the day of salvation. It's the day the builders rejected the cornerstone. And because that rejected stone uh, is truly what the entire house is built upon. That's the day that we rejoice. So then he goes on in verse 25, and he actually says, Hosanna, save now, or save us, we pray, O Lord. O Lord, we pray, give us success. Verse 26, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. We bless you from the house of the Lord. Those verses should spark a little bit of a reminder. Wait, I remember hearing that. Hosanna, Hosanna in the highest, save now. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. That that was the section of scripture that many people quoted as Jesus rode into Jerusalem on a donkey and a few days later was crucified for sinners. This is what the people cried out. And so they cried out, save now, Hosanna. It's a prayer asking God to intervene on our behalf. And so the blessing coming from the house of the Lord involved even a rejection of the foundation of that house. So verse 27, he says, the Lord is God, Jehovah is God. He has made his light to shine upon us. Bind the festal sacrifice with cords up to the horns of the altar. In other words, hey, tie up the animals and bring the animals up. And we're going to offer these animals as a sacrifice to God. And yet, isn't it interesting that they're seeing that in one way, in one idea, and yet underneath all of it, this was fulfilled in a way the original writer never would have expected, that God himself was the sacrifice. God's son was offered as the propitiation for our sin. He was the festal sacrifice bound, led to the horns of the altar. Now, the last two verses... Uh, Note, are a reminder to give thanks. Verse 28, you are my God and I will give thanks to you. You are my God. So the response is, I will extol you. And then verse 29, same as verse 1, oh, give thanks to the Lord for he is good. Why? For his steadfast love endures forever. I wonder if the psalmist ended with the same lyric as the first in a little bit louder way. I wonder if he sang it with a little more conviction. Why? Because the psalmist in this song has seen God come to his rescue. He's seen the wonder of God's salvation in crushing God's son. He's seen severe discipline, and yet he's still alive. He's watched as God's opened the gate of righteousness and uh, the saving right hand of God uphold him. And even though he's surrounded by enemies all around him, even like bees in a swarm of bees threatening him. All those threats burned up like a fire of thorns. He's seen God's faithful love stick with him through the good and difficult times. And he's able at the end of this psalm to personally say, not just say, hey, Israel, you say this, but he turns to himself and says, he's my Lord. He's my God. I will give thanks to him. In fact, God's name, the Lord in all caps, is found in this psalm 28 times in almost as many verses. I believe he's singing verse 29 louder, bringing a crescendo of gratitude to this grand conclusion as he says, man, I indeed can cry out that God is faithful and his steadfast love endures forever. So I just want to thank you, Lord, for being faithful. Now to kind of apply this psalm, I want to leave us time for communion today and bring some application home.
I want to do this in a, just a very simple way to apply this passage. Just one simple question. Now remember, when we ask questions or when we apply scripture, this is not where you text your friend who wasn't here today and say, bro, you had to hear this. You got you to listen to this. Okay? That, that's not a question for them. This is not the point in the sermon, wife, where you elbow your husband and say, honey, pay attention. The pastor's talking about you. Okay? My wife can't do that because I'm up here. So, yes, this is talking about me and it's talking about you. This is for you. This is for me. Can we, can we acknowledge that this morning? Are we bold enough to nod our head in agreement and say, I'm ready for this. This is for me. It's not for so-and-so. Okay, here we go. In light of all that God has done in the person and work of Christ, in light of the faithful, unfailing, prevailing love of God toward you, in light of his faithfulness, his goodness, his sovereignty, his love and mercy and kindness and provision and power and his rescue time and time again when you have called out to him in need, how is it possible that your life, that my life, is so marked by grumbling instead of gratitude? See, when the children of Israel were delivered from Egypt and they were in the wilderness, God had led them, God had blessed them, God had protected them, God had fed them, God had ultimately delivered them and provided even water for them and, and said to them, I've got this future good home for you that's flowing with milk and honey. You were used to eating onions and leeks. Come on, man, I've got milk and honey for you. It's a spacious place. I'm promising this for you. But what do we read in Numbers 14? We read that the people began to grumble and murmur and complain. And it says that if it weren't for Moses' intercession, that God was considering just wiping them out completely. In other words, with all that God had done in their life, where was the gratitude? Now, don't misunderstand me. You might say, well, that's Old Testament. No, no, no. This picture of God expecting gratitude from his people is not some false Marcion concept. Well, that's just the angry God from the Old Testament, and, and he's not like that in the New. Actually, let's look at Luke 17, just real quick. Luke 17 in the New Testament. Don't turn there. Jesus has just healed 10 lepers. But we don't say healed when we talk about lepers. We use the word. Every time a leper is healed, it's cleansed. And so he's just cleansed 10 lepers from their leprosy, but only one returns to worship and thank him, and it turns out he's a Samaritan. And Jesus says this. He asks this in Luke 17. I can see him doing this. He says this. We're not all 10 cleansed. Where are the other nine? Was no one found to return and give praise to God except this foreigner? You see, with the work that Jesus had done in the lives of these men, forever changing them, where was the gratitude? Paul told Timothy what people of apostasy and wickedness would look like in 2 Timothy 3, 1 through 5. Look at this on the screen. Maybe you've missed this. I missed it. 2 Timothy 3, 1. But understand this, that in the last days there will be uh, there will come times of difficulty for people will be lovers of self, lovers of money, proud, arrogant, abusive. Here's kind of a nod, disobedient to their parents. And then he says this, ungrateful. Wow. Unholy, heartless, unappeasable, slanderous, without self-control, brutal, not loving good, treacherous, reckless, swollen with conceit, lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God, having the appearance of godliness, but denying its power. And Paul says, avoid such people. But did you notice there, ungrateful made the list. It made the cut. Unthankful. 
meaning God had done something worthy of gratitude and thanksgiving, and there was an unwillingness to acknowledge him, to recognize him, and to give him thanks. What horrendous heights of selfish pride to grumble at God with all that he's given us. Listen, it's not extra when we thank God. It's expected. It's not extra. Uh, Matthew Henry, the famous scholar, love his commentaries, he once was robbed. He was actually held up and robbed of his purse. And so here's what he wrote in his diary. He said, let me be thankful first because I was never robbed before. Second, I'm thankful because although they took my purse, they did not take my life. Third, I'm thankful because although they took my all, (laughs) it was not much. And thankfully, fourth, because it was I who was robbed, not I who robbed. Wow, what a perspective. As we close, I want to invite our worship team forward, and uh, we're going to close in song, and the communion elements are going to be distributed during this song. I just want you to hold on to them. You take a cup and hold on to the cups. When the song's over, I'm going to share with us a time of reflection, and then we'll receive the elements together. Church, on the night that Jesus was betrayed, he was gathered in an upper room with his disciples. Reclining at the table, Judas had already left, and they were partaking of the Passover meal. And the Bible says that Jesus began to wash his disciples' feet, and then he began to share this amazing story afterwards about the Holy Spirit, about preparing a place for them. Uh, And both Mark and Matthew add one little detail that happened in the upper room right before they left for the Mount of Olives. Here's what it says. It says in Matthew 26, 30, it says, and they sang, a, uh, they sung a hymn and they went out to the Mount of Olives. Remember earlier I said the Jews would sing Psalm 113 to Psalm 118, the first two during or before the Passover and the last four after the Passover. That means that Psalm 118 was the last song that Jesus sang with his disciples before going to be betrayed in the garden. And so as they sang these lyrics together, they were affirming, this is the day the Lord has made. That the stone the builders had rejected is right in their presence, right in their midst, the chief cornerstone. And this is the Lord's doing. What they were about to see was the Lord's doing. It pleased the Father to crush the Son. And all of this salvation is marvelous in our eyes. And one day soon they would declare with joy that Jesus has become my salvation as he rose from the grave. And you know what? Every saint who has called upon his name can say the same thing. Everyone who's repented of their sin and trusted Christ for their eternal hope can say, the Lord Jesus has become my salvation. So this morning, may we rest in his finished work. May we build our lives upon the bedrock foundation of his person and work. And additionally, may we live our lives in such a robust and reverent gratitude for his glory and for our good. My prayer is that we wouldn't leave today and just say, yeah, that was nice. What you did at Calvary was kind of sweet. Thank you, Lord. No, we would be broken before him and say, Father, forgive me. Lord, I've been such a grumbler, such a complainer. I'm such a whiner. I'm not a worshiper. Uh, I've just been asking for more and I'm not pleased when I get what I want. I'm like Israel in the, in the wilderness, just grumbling and wanting more. I'd just go back to Egypt. It just would have been better for me to not follow you. My prayer is that we today would live lives of just robust gratitude. Amen? Let's stand together and I'm going to pray a prayer from the book called Valley of Vision, Puritan Prayers. The Puritans got prayer down. I just want to pray this prayer for us. 
It's called Praise and Thanksgiving. You can bow your heads with me as I pray this. It says, O my God, thou fairest, greatest, first of all objects, my heart admires, adores, loves thee. For my little vessel is as full as it can be, and I would pour out all that fullness before thee in ceaseless flow. When I think upon and converse with thee, 10,000 delightful thoughts spring up. 10,000 sources of pleasure are unsealed. 10,000 refreshing joys spread over my heart, crowding into every moment of happiness. I bless thee for the soul thou hast created, for adorning it, sanctifying it, though it is fixed in barren soil. I bless you for the body thou hast given me, for preserving its strength and vigor, for providing senses to enjoy delights, for the ease and freedom of my limbs, for hands, eyes, and ears that do thy bidding. I bless you for thy royal bounty providing my daily support, for a full table and an overflowing cup, for appetite, taste, sweetness. I bless you for social joys of relatives and friends, for the ability to serve others, for a heart that feels sorrows and necessities, and for a mind to care for my fellow men. I bless you for opportunities of spreading happiness around, for loved ones and the joys of heaven, for my own expectation of seeing thee clearly. I love thee above the powers of language to express for what thou art to thy creatures. Increase my love, O oh my God, through time and eternity. Lord, would you do that today? Would you increase our love for you as your steadfast love has been so faithful in our lives? May we just reflect with a time of gratitude. In Jesus' name, amen. Thanks for listening to our podcast. Shoreline Church meets every Sunday at 10 a.m. at the Lakewood Ranch YMCA. You can get more content and more information by visiting thisisshoreline.com. If you have any questions or any prayer needs, please don't hesitate to email us at info at calvaryshoreline.com. God bless you.